welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Happy New Year. Thank you for coming back and joining us in 2023. So we've got many weeks of updates to catch up on. Katie, what is the report? Did Christmas happen? Christmas did happen. And we we have not put any hay up, Arlene. I feel like there was a long part of last year where it just... Every week, my update was we made hay. No yeah. hay has been made None, since last year. No time hay we spoke. in December or January. Zero, zero hay. Quite a bit of hay has been fed. Got it. No yes. hay has been produced. The cows all weathered that last jet stream bomb, cyclone, tornado, blizzard, whatever the hell that was. Super uh, was, cold and gross. Yeah, it was like negative 50 wind chills and yeah, destruction, nice. destruction horribleness. I bet the your cows, new roof on the barn held up, though. It did it did which is good because if we paid that much money and it didn't i would <laughs> it would be very sad yeah that would be um, problematic yeah the sheep are getting fat we'll start lambing first week of march so it's on the big calendar in the kitchen do the sheep know about the calendar no but i like to take it out and show it to them so right. that they know yeah, yeah. not before know, not too much after not before not after. Please mark it on the calendar if you anticipate needing help. Um, you know. Yeah, let me mark all the holidays in so you know when we should need to call the vet. And because I don't know about anybody else, but it is not a holiday weekend if the vet's not here. Yeah, so for sure. So it's just not the same without Dr. Amanda. Just prepare a little um, bit of extra food, right? Yeah, she's one of the family. Other than that, not much is going on. I thought the kids were going back to school today, but apparently it's tomorrow. So that was a little embarrassing, but thankfully daycare was prepared for that eventuality. Um, <laughs> Just on And your we were end. not the only family who thought the okay, school was good, good. starting today. Yeah. It was a little confusing. Break was over yesterday, but today was a teacher in service. So yeah, they're back to school, really but they're the not same. actually yeah. But going. you can't actually go to school. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the Christmas report though? Was it as exciting as they thought it was going to be? I know the uh, they were spending a lot of time talking about it in advance. My son recognized the baler, the, the box that the toy baler he wanted was in, despite the fact that it was wrapped and upside down. He Very said, impressive. oh, look, I got my baler. <laughs> And that's just, how if you spent too much time at the farm store looking yeah, at this toy. Just dimensions alone. Yeah, yeah. Christmas was really good until the morning of the 26th when they came down and said, where are our presents? Oh. And uh, every day since then when they've asked when Christmas is. Because, <laughs> so uh, we're just going to talk about Christmas from now until next year. No, the boy child has also asked when we anticipate that we might die. Oh, that's so, something to look forward to, too. Yeah, yeah, that's something. Yeah. Oh, and the girl child sprained her ankle on New Year's Eve, jumping out of her friend's bunk bed. So we got to spend the morning hours of New Year's Day enjoying our newly rolled over out-of-pocket max on our insurance by spending the morning at the emergency room, making sure it was not broken, which it wasn't, Perfect. thank God. 
But yeah, start the year off right. Yeah. It's also not a holiday if you're not in the emergency room. That's true. Yeah, emergency room or emergency vet call. Like the only only two ways to start a holiday. How are things up in your world, Arlene? They're good. Yeah, Christmas was the actual Christmas Eve, Christmas Day were pretty quiet. We got a delightful ice, rain, snow, super high wind storm through those couple of days. So it actually worked out well because we had planned to celebrate Christmas with my husband's side of the family three or four days before Christmas. And my one sister didn't come home from southwestern Ontario or not home, here. she Her home is in southwestern Ontario, so she was not traveling until between Christmas and New Year's. So Christmas Day was actually pretty quiet. It was just us and my in-laws and my one sister-in-law after chores. Yeah, it was. It worked out nicely that Christmas was quiet, that we didn't have to cancel any plans because we weren't going to go anywhere. Church actually got canceled on Christmas Eve because the storm was so bad. So we were in our pajamas watching The Grinch instead of being in church on Christmas Eve, which was fine. It was cozy. And yeah, we didn't actually have to call the vet on Christmas. So that was nice. And my parents were able to get to our place. They usually come for brunch on Christmas Day. So we did still get to see them, which is our usual tradition. So that was nice. And then, like I said, my one sister was coming to this end of the province. So we did a couple of days with them and lots of cousin time. We had a daytime celebration of New Year's Eve and we were back home well before midnight. We're in that place, though, where we've got kids who want to stay up till midnight, but their parents are old enough that they don't really want to stay up until midnight, compromised, and I stayed up and my husband went to bed, which is the usual compromise when it comes to staying up late. Did you see midnight? No, we have a tradition with some friends whose their oldest little boy is two weeks older than the girl child, where for the last quite a few years now, we get together for what we call New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, depending on the day. And we have a big fancy lunch. And then we can all go to bed at eight o'clock. And it's amazing. That is delightful. they have a six-week-old baby. So I got to snuggle the baby and eat good food and go to bed about the same time that their six-week-old baby did. And it was amazing. Perfect. Hopefully you slept through the night. No. I haven't no. slept through the night in, since before I got pregnant with the first kid. Okay. That's that not part of your a, routine, then that's okay. No. No. No, but it was delightful. And Good. Yeah. I don't think I've got much to report on the farm side of things. It's the usual. Cows are getting milked. Cows are having calves. Yeah. The usual stuff in the barn. Everything seems to be working. We have gone, maybe you too, have gone into this weird thaw where it's like way warmer than usual. So I'm sure that means that it's going to get super cold again soon. So that's usually a case for people, not people, animals to start getting pneumonia. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not, but that's not ideal. If it could just be like a consistent temperature, that would be nice. But I guess that's not the way it's going to be. And our kids yep. don't go back oh. to school. Oh, sorry, Katie. Our kids don't go back to school for a few more days. So we're still chilling at home. We're uh, we're getting the same thing with that thaw. And I know you live on a gravel road, too. I assume that your roads are as big of a sh- show as ours are. With ours the, is uh, that in between. It's like a packed tar type thing. But yeah, it's not good. Okay. Yeah, we're at that place where it's half an inch of mud on top of four inches of ice. 
Oh, nice. And then with some fresh ice on top of the mud. So that's always <laughs> real fun. Our yard's the same way. So walking across the yard is a little slippy right now. Lots of wet, muddy dogs, too. Yeah. Yes, very much. So. Yeah. And wet, muddy kids. Very much that, too. Yeah. So why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest for this week. This is an episode that we recorded a while ago because we've gotten so many amazing guests lately, but we're really excited for you guys to listen to this one. So today we're talking to Arlen Taylor, who is a fish farmer as part of a family-run fish farm here in Ontario. And we start each of our interviews with the same questions. This is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. We ask, what are you growing? And this can cover crops and livestock for farmers and families and businesses and all manner of other things. So Arlen, what are you growing? We, so we are Spring Hills Fish and Cedar Crest Trout Farms simultaneously. We do a little bit of everything in the fish industry. So our primary business for the last 25 years has been rainbow trout and namely rainbow trout fingerlings, which are four to six inch fish that then get shipped out to other farms, be them land-based or big net pen farms around Georgian Bay. More recently, we have started also now raising uh, coho salmon and arctic char. We also have the longest running breeding program, Ontario for sure, for rainbow trout. We have our breeders dated back to 1953. So we also breed between 10 and 12 million eggs a year. And we supply those to not only ourselves and our own farms, but also to other farmers across Canada. And then in COVID times, we started growing fish for meat. So now we run a direct-to-consumer brand and we have our processing plant. And we deliver to 15 to 1800 homes a month. So that's been a completely new thing for us. And then we started a partnership with some First Nations groups up north. And we've gotten into net pen farming now for bigger meat production, just because we are basically timed out on our farms down here in the south in southern Ontario. So it's, uh, yeah, we do a lot of different stuff. And I have numerous dogs that you will hear barking throughout this podcast. That is a I, lot of different things. And are you also growing a family? I hear that you're a parent too. I am. Yeah, I have one son. He is seven, soon to be eight. My husband also works with us here on the farms. Not really by choice, more by circumstance, <laughs> by way of getting me pregnant. But anyways, so yes, we have that. And then all my adopted teenagers, we run a pretty big co-op program. And I have, I don't know, currently I have four teenagers that work with us on the farms and that our way of having more children because my body is broken. So I steal other people's delinquents. She's definitely one of us, Arlene. So Arlene, my first question, I'm going to go ahead and skip what Arlene has here. What is it like to have livestock that can't run away? Well, they can swim away. And the, a large part of our job is to ensure that never happens. So are they not it, in tanks then or where? They are in tanks. So we have tanks, but all of our farms are a little bit different. On the six different facilities that we have, one specifically that is a river run facility. So basically wow. what that means is the river is diverted through the farm, not the river in its entirety, but a percentage of the river, about 25% of the water flow. And it comes through the farm and returns back to the river. And at that particular facility, it's not so much that the rainbow trout want to get out of the facility, but it's that the wild fish want to come into the facility because it's getting into the mandarin. So they, we have a big exclusion process there. And then obviously with the net pen farm up north, it's ensuring that the fish cannot get out of the nets for whatever reason. Holes can happen, predators like to chew them, things like that. So that's a big part of our job. When you say they can't run away, if you're in a tank with them, they can swim at you with all of their force as a group, which can knock you over. 
That's terrifying. Like, um, it, well, we have cattle, and I'm way more freaked out by the idea of a bunch of fish attacking. Well, we not considered with, uh, this. Some of our industry partners who have tilapia, we actually have to wear hockey helmets to get in the tanks because the fish's defense mechanism is to jump out of the water and shock you in the head. So, yeah, fish can be pretty brutal. Wow. I'm picturing those fish and Finding Nemo where they're all working together to open up the net. But that is absolutely a thing. That is absolutely a thing. And depending on, yeah, depending on the species, the salmon are much more prone to the group thing being like one guy makes up his mind and everybody follows suit. Rainbow trout are a little more salt. A little have a little more solidarity they they will get along and work together but they will also just be jerks and work alone and arctic char are just here for a good time they're just they're like the golden retrievers of fish they're pretty predictable so we need like a I've, fish personality test what fish are you that would be good. Uh, exactly we actually have some people like named things after different fish based on their personalities some people nice. we don't like we call them rock bass they're annoying and they're always Ow. on the end of a hook yeah. I think I'm probably a flounder. Both eyes on one side, laying around and looking confused. So, how, so did yeah. your fam- how did your family get started in the business of fish farming? Uh, it's, uh, huh. it's all my dad's fault. <laughs> it's all my dad's fault. So he and a bunch of buddies, he was working for a feed company, which is no longer around, Martin Feed Mills. He was working for them in the 60s. And I don't know, they all got drunk one night and decided they wanted to start making fish food. But to make fish food, you need to know how to feed fish. So him and four or five other guys built a fish farm, which is now the Ontario Aquaculture Research Station. But they had a bunch of ponds and they had some tanks and they were figuring out how to raise fish. And at the same time, they were figuring out how to formulate the feed to feed the fish. 69, dad starts that, works with that facility until they sold it in 1988. And his dream was to always have his own farm. So where I currently reside in Allen Park, he bought the property in 1986. It used to be a fly fishing club and he wanted to build a farm. It took him and my mom nine strenuous years of trying to convince the powers that be through regulation bodies that the farm could be put here and how to build it and so on and so forth. And so he opened this facility in 1995. We have had great times and we've had some shitty times like every other farmer. And then like many other forms of farming, the old boys, the sort of likeness to the old hundred acre farm, um, the same phenomenon has happened in fish farms. The standalone farm just can't make ends meet for a family anymore. So old boys that had long, long since paid off their assets started retiring and new people were not coming in the business. So other farms started purchasing other farms. So in 2011, my dad purchased two facilities and I came on board in 2013 and we purchased another facility in 2014-15 over the winter. And then my brother came on board in 2017. We purchased another farm and together in 2018. And it's just been like a growing the business that way to get new permits has been impossible. So we buy old grandfathered permits and we renovate the facilities to bring them into a more modern approach. So all of that is to say my dad got into it because it was different. He did not want to work with cattle. He'd worked with a lot of cattle. You have to be batshit crazy to be a fish farmer, to be any kind of farmer, but really to be a fish farmer because it's water and it can, 
comes with its own problems. And he loved the math. He loved the innovation. He loved being a pioneer. So that was what attracted him to this business. And then for myself and my brother, we were never raised that we were supposed to take this over, thankfully. We never thought we would do it. It was actually the furthest thing from either of our minds. We both took off at 18 and said, fuck this. Here we go. Let's do something different. And both of us, my brother's a couple years younger than me, had 10 years off the farm, we'll call it, doing a myriad of other things. And then we came back around. My dad called me. I was working overseas and he said, I need your help. My dad is a very proud man and had never asked for my help. We would butt heads all the time. And I said, okay, I'll come back and help. And I did. And I got pregnant and the rest is history. So that kind of sewed it up for me. And then subsequently my brother, because I roped him into it too. So for the reasons why I'm in fish farming is because it's an amazing way to work with incredible people in a really cool industry and raise my family in a not war zone. Yeah. What so, was that transition like going back, coming back and working with your, with both your parents? Is your mom active on the farm as well? My mom was active. Yeah. So my mom was just coming back into it herself. So she and I took over all the bookkeeping and took over everything it would have been done externally. My dad had been very much left to his own devices for a few years. Part of the reason why I never really envisioned this as part of my future was because at the time it was only one standalone facility, which was a lot of like daily grind, which I don't mind the daily grind, but it just, I couldn't see beyond what my dad had done or was doing on a daily basis with adding at the time two more facilities. It was a lot more interesting. The transition piece there, basically I made a deal with my dad. If I'm coming home, I'm going to run it. You have to step down because my dad is, and I are both bullheaded assholes. And whenever I was between contracts and I was home for a while, of course, I'd help him out. We'd get in a fight because I'd be like, hey, what if we do something new? That's not how we do it. And so that was a constant theme and a constant burden point. So the transition was he needed to step down and, so that I could step up. And we have and had at the staff at the time, incredible staff that convinced me to do it and supported me to do it. And they, to this day, I am very grateful that they said it's this way or no way. And my unwavering sense of responsibility kicked in at that point. The transition was not that hard. I lived a transitional life, so it wasn't, it was just a new thing. I think the hardest transition was the baby in the middle of all of that. Arlen, I have to say, I really appreciate your self-awareness and transparency talking about the difficulties of working with family. There's certainly a lot of ag folks out there who are like, everything has always been great for six <laughs> generations. Everyone has always gotten along perfectly. And I'm like, no, that's you bullshit. pour Valium in your well or are you lying? Because <laughs> there's no way. Like no. statistically, no matter how well you get along, there's going to be problems. Yeah. So I know you were talking about your brother and I have to know because we've been communicating on social media, which one of you is responsible for the God awful puns? That's totally. By which I'm super impressed. 100% him. So the beautiful merriment so of the two of us is that RJ is a PR genius and has a lot of fun. And that is all him. I am the eye rolling. I think it's next to dad jokes in the background going, oh, fuck me. But he oh, they're totally it. close so, to dad makes, jokes and I'm here for it. Oh, 
yeah yeah and he of course now like people give him new ones and so he yeah no he's just all over it so that is 100% RJ. All the social media presence that you see there is down to him. And more recently, we hi- have a new hire that is also helping him on that front. But that is all RJ. That's obviously effective because it stuck in my head enough to oh, yes. know, hang no. on to it and to come ask you about it. Exactly. No, RJ is the beautiful one of the two of us. He's the face we throw out in the public. I'm the grinder in the background getting all the work done. And I let him take all the credit for it. That's worth a lot though. So what can you tell us about how your operation runs? And the one thing I really wanted to ask is how fish are slaughtered because it's not, I don't go fishing. I don't eat fish to be perfectly honest. We can change, we can change your mind about that. So when we raise fish, it's a very complex job. There's many parts to it. I alluded to earlier about our breeders that we have. We have nine different strains that we crossbreed for different reasons. And we start them from there. Those breeders, when they begin breeding, are three years old, and we breed them four times until they're six years old, and then we retire them. We have the eggs, so we incubate the eggs for a period of 28 days to IOP, which is during those first 28 days, we are very tenderly taking care of them, just like they would be in an incubator on, say, a chicken barn. And we don't really touch them. It's a very much a hands-off experience. Once they IOP, that's the 28-day mark in our current water temperature regime, then we can start handling them again. And then we hatch them out around day 42, they hatch out. They are not born with the ability to swim right from the beginning. So we need to keep them in a nice, cool, dark place so that they can absorb their food supply. They're born with their own initial food supply in the land of Salmonids anyways, which is what we Day 57, we take them out of the incubators where they've been resting and we start getting them to swim. We teach them to swim up. So When they're born, they do not have any air in their swim bladders, which is what regulates their position in the water column. So they swim as hard as they can to the surface of the water, take a big old gulp of air, and they fill their swim bladder. And that's where they can start maintaining their position so they can swim. And then we get them on feet and we raise them up, depending on the water temperature on any given facility. I should add my five land-based facilities all work as one big organism. They might switch facilities while they're eggs. They might switch facilities while they're swim-ups or fry or fingerlings, and they're moving around. From the beginning, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) from the beginning, it's to get them swum up and good to go. By that time, they're about three months of age. So we're caring for them on a daily basis. We're cleaning their tanks. We're feeding them up to 20 times a day. We're making sure their fish health is good, making sure the strain crosses are good doing a whole ton of monitoring. And then we'll move them into different facilities, either within our group or we'll sell them outside when they're, let's say, four to six inches. And then they're, if they're staying with us to grow on as meat fish, they'll be with us for another additional two years. And if they're going to a client, obviously they're getting shipped on a truck and out the door they go. So there is daily, hourly care involved there. It's a very complex watching the systems. All of our systems are very different. So if there's pumping systems or aeration systems or any myriad in between. So yeah, we have a incredible staff of 25 amongst the farms and the processing plant. So if they're staying with us for meat animals, we'll raise them up depending on the species. The Arctic char, for example, will start harvesting at two pounds. The rainbow trout will start harvesting at three pounds. 
and the salmon will start harvesting between six and seven pounds. All of that weight is about the same time period. It's about two and a half years on the facilities. And then they are live hauled to our processing plant. So we load them up in trucks that are full of water and oxygen and aeration. And we take them directly to our processing plant. You mentioned about slaughter. There are very few places currently in Ontario that practice humane slaughter because fish farms and the fishery are governed by the same laws. The practice which wild fish catch does and the harvest for a farm have been very similar, which is an ice slurry slaughter. So you're putting fish into ice water and slaughtering them. That is not what we practice. What we practice is a percussive stun to the head used with a zephyr. If you're familiar with zephyrs in chicken barns, for example, which causes immediate loss of sensibility. So it basically fractures their brain. And then we do a gill cut, which is basically the jugular of the fish. And so that fish then goes into the ice water bath for 20 minutes and it will bleed out. So we are, from the time the fish are out of, they're only out of water for between 15 and 30 seconds before they're slaughtered. That's part of our claim to fame, so to speak. And then they're processed immediately. From the time the fish come off the truck until they're in the freezer is about two hours. Can you describe to me the kind of the physical spaces you're working in? We're both in Ontario, so I know that it's cold a lot of the year. How much of your facilities are indoors? How much is outdoors? I'm having a hard time picking. Yeah, so it's, it's a hybridized. So when fish are small, eggs or let's say anything under two inches, they're always inside. So we have, think of big barns, except for their big tarp structures like coveralls. Um, whereby our interior spaces are, some of them are in buildings, fully enclosed heated buildings, some are in coveralls, and they're in small tanks. So the smaller the fish, the smaller the tank. And as they get bigger, so do their tanks. And the bigger tanks are outside. My facilities overall, <clears throat> I have two big, what we call the kingpin facilities. These are the two larger producing facilities, and they are 30% indoors and 70% outdoors. So yes, we work, whether it's minus 20 or plus 30, we are inside and outside. If you get so the inside in job, sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're not, depending on the weather. Yeah, that's right. So in the wintertime, is just aerating the tanks and the fact that the fish are moving around, is that enough to keep things so it depends on the, yeah, so it depends on the facility. So everything comes down to water. Not all of our facilities, all of our facilities have different water sources. So some of them are spring fed. We have these gorgeous aqueducts in the area that free flow about 1500 gallons of water a minute. That is consistently nine degrees. That water will never freeze. The water coming into a facility, if it's a flow through facility, which three out of ours are, then it comes into the system and flows right out within 20 minutes. So it doesn't ice up at that particular facility. I have two that run on beautiful springs like that. So they never freeze over. Our hardest farm is our Cedarcrest home farm where I live and it ices over completely like a river. The fish stay somewhat active. They're bodily functions are controlled by their temperature. They do not regulate themselves like a terrestrial animal would. So they slow down quite a bit. Our water temperature here drops down to about 0.8 degrees Celsius. So just like a river, it ices over the top 10, 12, sometimes 16 inches, and the rest flows underneath. So we keep certain spots open for them through aeration so that they can come up and feed and so that they can exchange gases in their swim bladders. But aside from that, they're under the ice, they're hanging out, they don't mind, they're used to it.
So we just have to make sure the ice doesn't get too thick. So they have, they maintain adequate space for themselves. And so there's only one facility that ices up. The others do not, with the exception of the Manitoulin Island facility, which is a whole other ice story that causes me great grief. I'm still suffering PTSD from. Nothing like standing out in the middle of a lake with a hockey stick and a hundred kilometer sheet of ice wondering what the fuck you're going to do today. Oh my God. Very Canadian. (laughs) Very Canadian. So I'm guessing they would grow slower and eat less than when things are colder in the winter. Yeah. So growing. So part of. Part of our whole strategy on using Cedar Crest, our Allen Park facility for a breeding system is so that we can mimic what fish face in Ontario. So fish in the lakes, fish on other farms, face ice. In the summer, they also face crazy high water temperatures up to 27, 28 degrees Celsius. So our breeders over the period of the last 27 years that we've been at this facility have been exposed to these highs and lows constantly so that we are genetically breeding in a tolerance for climate change and everything else that we're dealing with. So yeah, they get, for the first two years of their life, they're forced to deal with those temperatures and those conditions so that we can better prepare the fish so that they will be able to, their offspring will be able to handle those same circumstances. For our uh, metric listeners, 28 degrees Celsius is 80 two degrees Fahrenheit, which is yes. damn hot for most fish, I would think. It is very um, hot. It used to be thought the lethal temperature for rainbow trout was 26.2 or 78 degrees Celsius. We have proven that wrong through genetic variants over the past two decades. So when you're talking about smaller tanks and bigger tanks, what kind of volume are you talking? So when you know, talk for about myself, like three goldfish, five gallons, 15 <laughs> liters or something, I'm guessing that's not what you mean. No. So we, we work with total tank volumes and we work again in metric, unfortunately, based on liters in a tank and how many kilos per cubic meter of water we can put in. So our tanks, they vary. Our smallest tanks would be, I'm trying to think, they're point six of a cubic meter so 600 liter tanks so if i take that back to metric 158 exactly u.s gallons i've got google pulled up there you go normally do our canadian translator 150 gallons would be our smallest tanks and our biggest tanks gosh they're 10,000 cubic meters so i'm not sure how that breaks down it's 100,000 liters but I'm sure your Google there can help you with that. 26,417. There you go. So those are our biggest rearing units. Basically the way that we calculate it is how many kilos of fish we can put in a cubic meter of water. We have very strict welfare rules amongst our company that govern how many we can raise there. And the smaller the fish, the less, the less weight per cubic meter and the bigger the fish, the more weight cubic meter. So it ranges. Our lowest tanks will be about 10 kilos per cube. And our highest tanks on the land-based side will run between 80 and 90, with the exception of Arctic char that like to be raised at about 120. That's their own social networking that they need. And then when we talk about those same densities do not apply when we deal with the net pen farms, we never ever get higher than 18 kilos per cube. So then two more questions. What do you do with that much dirty fish shit water? So it's because that's a lot. Seems... Someone who's cleaned a few small yeah. tanks. That's a lot of fish shit water. 
it is a lot of fish shit water, but it's also not a lot of fish shit water. So when you break down fish shit, it's actually 85% water. So it's only 15, 15% hard organic matter. We have holding facilities. So we clean those tanks every day and we take all of that manure out and we decant off the water over a series of years because you don't just pull the water out unless you're willing to spend exorbitant amounts of money, which we are not. So we naturally decant out all of the water and then we clean up our manure lagoons like anyone has on any farm. We clean those manure lagoons up depending on the facility at, between our smallest holding facility. We have to clean out every three years and we have one that we clean out every 30 years. So because of the way that land-based fish farms are regulated, we cannot take that manure off site. So every one of our facilities has a manure spreading field where once we've done this decanting and we're doing the final cleanup, same equipment you guys use with the big old honey wagons. We pull them out, we spread them over the fields. In the case of our Allen Park facility, my father to this day raises the hugest concoction of squash and, and pumpkins. I like acres of squash and pumpkins. I don't fucking know why, just because he likes to give something for me to do because I'm not busy enough and he's 80. So we have to do it. But anyways, he, we raise it there. So it's a really fast nitrogen response on, on fish manure and it's virtually gone within like two weeks. So then what do the fish eat? And I'm guessing the Fish manure does not smell nearly as bad as the fish emulsion fertilizer that I'm using on my plants because I think that's made mm, from no. actual it's fish, made, right? Ma yeah, yeah. So for your plants, it's made from ground up fish. I made the mistake of watering all the plants in the house with fish emulsion once. And between mm -hmm. the smell and how happy the cats were, it was yeah. not something I'll do again. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it smells like rotting fish. It, 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 it is rotting fish. Rotting fish. Yeah. Plants were real happy. Fish. Cats were real happy. People were not real happy. <laughs> <laughs> that does not surprise me. So all of our feed is commercially produced. We work with two companies, one here in Ontario, that's a new fledgling coming along, and then a much larger company out of the East Coast. The reality of fish, specifically the fish we raise and most fish that humans like to eat in the Western world anyways, are top level predators. So salmon, for example, tuna, rainbow trout. We eat the fish that like to eat all the fish to get as big as they get. We have done a lot of work in the last 50 years on how much fish we need to have in their diet. Um, if they had it their way, they would be about 95% fish would be their normal diet. In this case, we've brought that down to about 40%. It's still other fish. So it's, it's a makeup of where we try to aim with our products is that we use fish from other processes. So for example, herring, if it's cut for human consumption, we take all the off bits and that's what gets put into fish food. So they eat a lot of it. But the great thing about fish is they convert at one to one. So that part's really neat based on all the work that we've done on our diets. So it's part of the sustainability that we feel really good about is the fact that if we put one pound of food in the, into a tank, we know that we're getting one pound of fish out of that tank or 50,000 pounds, give you 50,000 pounds of fish. So it's a pretty cool process. So it's a very yeah. specially formulated diet specifically for each species has its own specific food. Different species have different requirements. Char do not like a lot of fat where the salmon want all the fat you can give them. And the rainbow trout are kind of in between. So if you've gotten it down to about 40% fish, what is the rest made up of? I know it, it varies, but... 
it varies a lot. So there's a ton of antioxidant fats and packs and vitamins that we mix in there. Corn gluten meal, soy meal. We've done a lot of work with both of those over the years. Some of our feeds have insect meal, bringing down that amount of fish. That is a evolving science, we'll call it. We're not quite there yet. We have to be very cognizant of all of the feed that we use, the amount of phosphorus that's in the feed. It's a big concern in the fish industry. So we're very cognizant of that. There is some poultry byproduct meal put in there as well to balance out proteins, some feather meal, some bone meal. There's a little bit of everything. It's been a tweak fest and different companies and different diets are different amounts therein. And then there's the fish meal and the fish oil. Fish oil being a really key component of that, that 40%. So what is the, the hanging percentage on a fish that if you have a, an eight pound fish, how much of yep. that ends up on somebody's plate? Just, just picturing just, like a whole shitload of fish yeah, hung up yeah, like so if we talk, cattle and I just got distracted by that. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so there's many different cuts, obviously, when it comes to fish, just like there is with any other animal. If we're talking about a hog fish, which is a head on gutted fish, then the yield is about 86 to 88%. If it's head off and it's full fillets, they're v-cut or they're deboned in their entirety the yield there can range anywhere from 46 to 54 percent is the total meat value at the end but then can that fish scrap go back into fish feed for more fishes it can for other species so there's okay. some very strict ethical laws about feeding the same fish to the same fish it's an ethical morality question also comes with obviously some biosecurity issues if we do it Right now, what we do with a lot of our waste actually is we turn into your fish emulsion, as you've experienced. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially as you guys know, with the fertilizer prices going the way they are and some of the crazy controls that are being put on, people are looking for more natural options that they can continue to use that are cost effective. So that's a big part of what we do. We also feed another industry that takes a lot of heat, the fur industry. So a lot of the offal will go into the fur industry. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We often don't it's, think of as people who produce ant beef or animals, there's lots of talk about the ways that, that beef is in lots of different things or like bones and skin and all that kind of stuff. But we don't often think about yeah the other byproducts of. Yeah. So there, there's many different ways and there's people in the world that are definitely leading the charge on this. There's a large part in Europe, a large part of the offal goes into cosmetics. That's not something that we're exploring very much here in Canada yet, just because there's this huge vortex when it comes to fertilizers, fish meal, and fertilizers, fish meal, and now, or has always been the fur bearing. So you talked a little bit before about the changes in your business that, that occurred around the time of the lockdowns in, in 2020. Can yep. you talk a bit about how your business pivoted and what led to that and how you, you were able to, to capitalize and actually expand at that time? Yeah. So even before COVID was on the horizon, we had already, as we mentioned, there's a lot of consolidation in our industry as well. So we were already looking at how we could diversify our business a little bit better just because we were becoming very dependent on one or two other entities, which is very scary for us. We had bought this facility, we bought two facilities. The one that we purchased in 2014-15 is our namesake Spring Hills facility. It had a very small processing plant on it, but we had when I came into the industry, we were doing all kinds of stuff. We were pond stocking over here, we we're meat producing over here, we we're fingerling producing over here. We we're just, and no, we didn't really have a plan. It was all a big jumble. So when I came in, we consolidated and we really honed in on fingerling production so that we could build some capital to actually like 
do the renovations, do the things that needed to happen on these facilities. And that game treated us really well for about five years. And then everything just, people start getting a little edgy and there were less options and margins were crunching and all the things that happen in everyone's business models. And so we were already looking at that and we were trying to figure out a way to have more fun again. We had stopped having fun as much fun. And we have three rules to our business and one of them is to have fun. And so we were trying to find an option for that. So we had bought this facility that had this really small processing plant on it. They had been smoking some fish. They'd been supplying fish to some small restaurants and they were just doing fresh stuff. And it was this one incredible woman who can literally just cut fish all by hands with her eyes closed. And she was just like doing her thing, but it was detracting from what we needed to do as a company. So we shut it down. The other facility that we bought it in 2018 had a huge processing plant on it, but it had opted to huge by comparison. Sorry, huge by comparison. First processing plant is like a 10 by 20 building. This one by comparison was like 20 times the size. So huge to us. We were not processors. We're farmers. We didn't have a sweet fucking clue. So we wanted the farm, not the processing plant. So we just kept the processing plant shut down and had been shut down by the previous owners in 2011. So we kept it shut down. So we, in part of our diversification strategy, had already started producing fish for Quebec, larger fish in the one to two and a half pound range. Some of these were going as meat market fish, but a lot of them were getting stocked into private lakes for fishing lodges and the sort. So all the tenders in March of 2020 open up on March the 1st and the lockdown started and all those tenders disappeared. So a large hunk of our diversification strategy literally went out the door. As you guys know, raising livestock, animals never stop growing. So they were going to push out the space. So we sat down with council, which is what we call our group of site managers. And we said, well, what the hell are we going to do? And we said, well, we've got this small processing plant. We've been hawking some B grades for some other industry partners. For a while, we had these little pop-up shops we would do occasionally in the area. So we started drinking a bunch of beer, started up the barbecue and sharpened the knives. And we just started hand cutting and freezing fish at our super small, still registered through the meat inspection program. And it took off. People wanted local food. There was obviously all the crazy shortages and people were stockpiling. And we just started rolling with it through Facebook. And we just started going with it. So after about a month of that, we realized we are in some deep trouble here. Like we are, this is getting way too big for this tiny little building and this poor freezer is going to die. And we don't know what we're doing. And oh my God. So we quickly brought in the auditors for the other plants and said, can we make this work? Will you sign off on it? And they said, yeah, here's the list of things you need to do. So we tore it out on April the 6th, rebuilt the whole thing and had it back into production by May the 27th. We had some other industry, some other industry in the wild fisheries that were shut down during this time. They loaned us a bunch of equipment. We had been doing everything by hand. They loaned us equipment that would take the heads off fish and that would split and fillet the fish. And then we were just trimming everything by hand and we just kept going, we kept going and it, it kept going. And we kept thinking, okay, like everyone in 2020, it's going to stop. It's going to stop. It's going to stop. It's going to stop. It never stopped. And so then we started investing in more equipment and we started backpacking our fish and we just kept getting every time we have this amazing group of customers that we are so grateful for because they tell us our next steps. They tell us, okay, we want the fish backpacked. We want the fish deboned have you thought about doing other fish and all these different things and so we've just been taking signals as they come and yeah now it's this incredible thing where we're selling 
direct to people, like I mentioned before, 15 to 1800 homes every month. We're also dealing with smaller retailers, butcher shops, small grocery stores, and working with them. We work with the wild fishery, we work with other fish farms, and it's become its own whole. And we started, I should add, we're having fun. We're talking with people. We're getting the word out about fish farms because so many people don't have a clue what they are or that we're even here or have been here for quite a few years. And we're getting all this feedback and it's feeding us, like feeding what we're doing. It's feeding our energy. It's just been this absolutely incredible thing. We were fortunate enough that obviously there was a lot of people laid off during COVID. So we have a team of hairdressers that literally a team of hairdressers that trained into the processing plants and have now that's where they are. That's what they want to do. They don't want to go back to hairdressing. They don't want to go back to delivery driving. They just, and it was friends and family and anyone that was laid off. We just put out the word and everybody came to help. Like it was the coolest thing. So that has been amazing. And then because of that, we got into other farming and other partnerships and it's just, it's become this central focal point for a lot of what we do. And in the meantime, the rest of the market now is stabilizing. And so we're unbelievably grateful because we're still here and we're able to take care of all of the families that work with us. We have a lot of husband and wife duos that work with us. We have father and son duos. We have father and daughter duos. And we were able to keep all of these families safe and fed and we were all making money and we didn't have to close our doors. So like, it's been just the greatest blessing ever. And we've had a lot of fun with it. It's been a lot of stress and a lot of holy shit moments because we're not processors, but we're figuring it out. And yeah, we now we're doing it. It's pretty cool. It's a bit overwhelming at times at just how amazing it's all turned out to be. That does sound like an incredible transformation for sure. So what did, in terms of your workforce before and your workforce now, how big of a change was that? So the farms, the, the four or five, we'll call them, have always operated with 12 to 14 staff. That much hasn't changed. It's changed a little bit in the aspect that some of the farm on-farm staff now also help in the processing plant. The hours, I guess, are a little reduced on the farm or not reduced, just displaced, or the days are calculated a little bit differently so that we can allow for time to be working in the processing plants, which includes also hauling the fish there and all of these different pieces. We brought on brought on a lot of part-time staff for working in the processing plant, delivery, driving, things like that. It's definitely changed our administration a lot because now we're not dealing with three to five customers we're dealing with thousands so that's been a, a, the biggest I think overall change but we've very much kept it in the family if that makes sense so even in our processing plant God rest his soul a really good family friend who's retired he came in and said, I'm going to help you with this. I know all about a kitchen. Let's get it figured out. And he brought his wife in and his best friend. And then he passed away in March of this year. And his son came to us and said, I would like to step in. And his son's wife also works with us. And like, it's, yeah, it's been absolutely just amazing. And so it's still in the family, like our delivery drivers, we laugh because Allen Park, the population is probably like 52 people. 
And I think we employ 20 of them just because, hey, you got a couple of days a week. You want to help us out? And they do. So it's pretty great. So yeah, it, it, it's changed a lot in that sense. And it's professionalized us in many ways. And But we've been able to like, our millwright is my husband's best friend, bringing him in. So we've gotten better at certain areas, but it's still all just incredible people that are intertwined way more than six points. That's for sure. Yeah, so it's a lot more people, but good people great now that we've discussed feelings and all these things that katie is not comfortable with no it's incredible to view your community like that and to get that buy-in from Mm. friends and neighbors and everybody but we've been yeah overwhelmingly taken care of my my brother's mother-in-law works in the processing plant and she brought on other hairdressers and people that were needing jobs and yeah I think I'm talking really... about, no, I was just going to say, as far as talking about feelings, Katie, I was going to say you're, you, y'all are farmers. You get it. You're more prepared for the bad than anything. And you're like, not shocked when shit happens. It's more shocking to us that all this incredibleness has come our way. That, that I think I'm like, I've been struggling with that for the last couple of weeks and just, this is amazing. And I don't know what we've done to deserve it. And we're like, just spellboundedly grateful. And that's not an emotion that I, as a logistician, I'm used to dealing with. I think it says a lot about customer service work, too, that people would rather kill fish than deal <laughs> with the public. Having done customer <laughs> service work, I would rather kill fish than deal with the public. Just saying. So I watched one of your real TikTok video whatever's the other day. The moving pictures. I believe uh-huh. there might have been sound. We might even call it a talkie of you moving fish. And it looked like they get vacuumed up and then spit out the other end right yep totally spitballing because fish are fish do you think they enjoy that or do they think they're being abducted by like space aliens Um, i think they're just swimming really fucking fast and they're like look at me go yes or are they like what the fuck we're all gonna die i think it's more like the what the fuck i don't think they think they're gonna die But I do think they're like, where the hell am I going? And yes, the alternative being that they used to be moved in nets, like by hand, and they would be all scrunched up. I think that moving through the vortex is a lot nicer on them. But I absolutely think they're going like, we know a lot about social hierarchies and fish populations. And when you do something like that, it takes three days for them to figure out where they are. And if in that when we're moving them, we're not just moving them. So we're not just necessarily moving them from one tank to another. Oftentimes they're being counted or they're being shipped off to another facility or they're going through a grader or a vaccination machine. And so just that turmoil, it takes them sometimes the leaders of the pack have been moved to another tank. So then they have to reestablish the leader. So I, I think that in transit, they're more just what is going on. Okay. We can't comply because we don't, we're not supposed to, but this machine is making us comply. So we're going to, we're going to go with it, but then wherever we end up is the scary part. That's when it takes them a few hot minutes and days to figure out, okay, who's now the new leader? What are we obeying? Where is our food source? It takes them about three days, depending on the water temperature, but about three days, Annie, it takes them about three days to figure out all of those things so yeah it's that that's more my concern is more on the other end (laughs) that's trying to get interesting because i think as mammal farmers we don't think of non-mammals really as having a social structure maybe Uh birds more but it had honestly never occurred to me that fish would have a social structure yeah because 
their fish. And that's been the common misconception, I think, for quite a few years. People didn't think that fish were really even sentient or had feelings or could hear or any of these things. And we as farmers have known for years, of course they can. We know that there's all of these disruptions, but it's very mis everyone is misinformed the romances or the nuances that exist within the fish world and some much more than others it's just like different versions of meat birds right certain birds act this way certain birds act that way it's the same with fish or you probably see it in species of i don't know different strains of any form of livestock i have to admit that the way my brain works i'm now trying to picture what a romantic night would look like for fish because I, mean, um, I feel like the candlelit dinner is probably out because they're, you know, candlelit dinner is definitely out. The no. romance side of it involves a lot of biting. They're into yes. Then. All right. They, we actually have to separate the boys from the girls at a certain point because they bite the girls too much. So what are some of your goals for your business going forward? So our three main goals of our business at any given time, at all times, are we taking care of our people? That is our staff and our families. Are we growing and being sustainable in the way that we want to. And by sustainability being a very buzzword at this point, but economically, socially, and environmentally, are those actually being taken care of? And then finally, are we having fun? And if we're not having fun, if we're not enjoying it, then we pivot to something that brings us as a collective more joy. So those are always our goals. What I don't have, we don't have a big master business plan. We are literally at all times flying by the seat of our pants. We throw shit at the wall and we hope that some of it sticks in our case right now, everything's sticking, which is also terrifying. So those are our three goals. Um, what we're really trying to figure out now for all of us, especially my husband and I, is a little bit more balance. My husband has very much taken the lead on Manitoulin Island. So he's gone for weeks and months at a time, which has been really hard on me and really hard on my son, especially, and subsequently then me again. And so we're trying to figure out better balance for that moving forward. And then just balance all around for our staff to make sure that we do work long, hard hours, but we need to know that everybody's okay on the other side as for any myriad of reasons, be it health or finances or any of those things. So that's, those are our goals. I don't have a huge plan. We're just, we're trying to strike some balance right now. Those are some amazing goals and things to always be keeping in the forefront though. Just focusing on those alone is huge. Yeah. Everything we do, we ask ourselves those three areas. And like you said, if you come up with lots of great ideas and they all work, then uh, yeah. you don't need to think too much for, further, but you're still, you're still in fast forward trying to figure it all out. Yeah, we are, we're project junkies, which we have to be mindful of. We just, yeah. because we think we can do it doesn't mean we necessarily should. Yeah, that's right. So before you came home, you were working in international development. So yep. you talked a little bit about the family aspect of coming home, but what was that transition like? Or what was the decision like in coming back to um, Canada after working in that? I had been struggling with it for a while already. I was 27, 28 at the time. And I'd been struggling just with, I was, I loved it. It was all of the best and the worst, but the worst were just like really good adventure stories. But it was, I was jet setting all over the place. So I was flying everywhere. I was doing cool shit, blowing up landmines and just really cool work. But I was starting to get tired and I was starting to wonder like, what am I doing? This is all really cool adventures. And I to be doing that stuff in your twenties is like absolutely the optimal time to be just 
absolute crazy. You have nothing holding you back from doing anything. But as you got, as I got a little bit older, it was just like, I didn't know anymore. And I had some personal issues that had set me back and I, I just didn't really know anymore. And I couldn't really push beyond them. I just, I was it, divine timing interceded, I guess you can say. So sometimes still I miss that part of my life where I was completely uninhibited and I could do whatever I want. And I didn't have a husband and a, a, a son and my parents to take care of. And I didn't feel the weight of all of this responsibility. Sometimes I miss that romantically, but then I remember the cost of some of those things as well. So as far as the transition, I'm still not like super, super socially networked into the area. I'm like, got all my staff, which are also like all friends and family. So I never really conquered that part of it. Fortunately, I married, I basically married the equivalent of the boy next door. So his family is like super socially connected and everything. And so they prod me out occasionally. So that part I never, I haven't really developed because I've just thrown all of my stuff into this company. But yeah, so that, that was different. I sometimes miss the adventure, but by the same token, all of the skills and all of the stuff I was negotiating all kinds of pieces. So when I was, I apply all of that to what I'm doing now, whether it's working with other companies or working with First Nations groups or all of these things. So all the skills that I learned from that are being applied here. It's very funny to me. I would say sometimes it was a lot easier doing it when you're negotiating in the Congo versus negotiating with a bunch of unruly fish farmers, but it's, it all comes together. So the transition in itself, because I had lived a transitional lifestyle for 10 years, literally jumping all over the globe, wasn't that different to just jump into something. Um, I met actually my partner, who's not technically my husband legally, but my, I'm not allowed to call him my partner because he thinks everyone thinks I'm a lesbian. My husband, I'll just continue to refer to him as that. My husband was the boy that bought me beer in high school. So he, it took him 13 years to actually ask me out and he did. And we started seeing each other and yeah, he, he literally, we got pregnant completely on a whim. It was a very happy accident. So it's been navigating that. And I live here at the farm and my parents also choose to live here at the farm with us. So it's that whole multi-generational thing, which is really cool and really hard at the same time. My mom is very OCD and clean and everything is designer and I'm absolute fucking chaos and the dogs are everywhere and there's glitter on things. And yeah, so the, we navigate those things. So I think the biggest transition is just that you can't just leave. You have to make things work. That's been the biggest part. I was very good at taking a contract in a very far away place to get a very far away from whatever I was dealing with things. So that's probably the hardest part about the transition. It is really yeah. hard to, as someone who moved a lot and was on the go a lot, to just not to make the transition to staying in one place and doing one thing. Yeah. How does your previous work influence how you look at food production? And also, would you say then that being an entrepreneur and dealing with farmers in your family is more or less stressful than blowing up landmines? <laughs> I would say it's way more stressful for the same reason that you just said you're here. You have to face it every minute of every day and this unburdening like responsibility or burdening, not unburdening, burdening responsibility that I have all the time. And I don't mean that to sound negative. I just mean that responsibility has like an incredible amount of weight if you don't keep it in check at times. Because sometimes I think especially women are really good at feeling like we have to make sure everything's going good all the time. I feel like um, landmines too are probably a pretty 
self-limiting stress <laughs> blow on up either you blow up or you don't like it's pretty yeah, yeah gone, exactly you know where exactly. working with and family is not yeah yeah you have to be careful with the blow-ups in family they have a yeah. lot more ripple effects that's for sure I would say everything influenced it because I didn't realize I guess when I was younger that I was already being taught the skills to being a huge problem solver, which my dad was teaching us and my mom was teaching us on the farms. And my mom was a incredible, one of those crazy women in the eighties that was just like forging ahead for women in the workforce and really high level professional jobs. So she was already, we were already being taught all these skills or groomed, I guess you could say. And I didn't really realize that time. So a lot of that stuff came into play when I was working overseas and I did everything overseas. Like landmines sounds, it was one very small part of one of my contracts, but I also did a lot of negotiation. So I specialized in working in post-emerging economies. So post-conflict emerging economies such as Angola, Mozambique, Sudan, Congo, which is still in problem, Ethiopia, Iraq. So negotiating and what I was doing there is very similar to what I'm doing now in bringing people together. So if there were international companies that wanted to start work in a country such as Angola, they didn't know what the laws of the land were. It's not one thing to know what the regulations in the book are, but it's to actually know what the cultural rules are and all those things. So I would help, I would find those partnerships and make those partnerships between local companies and international companies and getting them all set up and getting them to work on various things. It could be building railroads, it could be oil fields, it could be diamond mines, it could be all different kinds of things. So those same things apply here. Our industry has gone through many fractures over the years. So many fractures from there's these land-based facilities such as ours, and then there was these new net pen facilities. And the net pen guys obviously produced a huge volume of fish in comparison to the land-based guys. But the land-based guys were the ones that got this province on the map when it came to fish farming, but they didn't talk to each other. They actually, the, there was like an inferiority complex that was being dealt there. So part of my thing when I came in was getting everybody back together. Like we're all raising fish. The question of competition doesn't exist in our industry. In Ontario, we still import two times what we produce here. So there's no question of sales. We're talking with suppliers and all that and bringing everyone to the same page. My, myself plus a, another woman, some will say we hijacked the industry association. We got rid of all the government funding and it had turned into, like many industry associations, just a group that was looking for funding. So you'd create all these projects and do silly things just to get the funding to keep your staff. We took that all back and we said, no, stand up as an industry, stand up, put your money in and let's stand up. Let's do the lobbying. Let's do the work. So all of those things need to apply. And then obviously I'm dealing with these dinosaur facilities. So I call them my old dinosaurs. They have good bones. They have great water, but we needed to completely retrofit them and rebuild them, but not rebuild their bones because of regulational problems. Being able to do all that, this is just similar skills to building refugee camps in, in Iraq for Syrians. I just used the tools we have, which were the guys that have run these facilities for years, their ideas and rebuilt it. The Syrians were the ones that built their own refugee camp. It's the same philosophy. So Everything is intertwined and having to learn a lot of cultural patience and a number of different languages to do my job before. It's the same thing working here. We have the same or similar problems when we talk about everyone wants to talk about reconciliation. Well, what does that really mean? And that's very much what this industry has done really well is working together with First Nations. It's not a question of repairing the damage, which everyone thinks it is moving forward. So having worked in emerging economies is all about working ahead and that's what we're doing here and as an 
as an industry, that's what we're doing on an individual level and as a group level. So it, it all intertwines and becomes very blurry, but every skill set I learned before I went off and then I honed it in and then I continue to hone in on what I'm doing. And I'm not saying I'm doing it all right because I'm definitely not, but I keep learning every day. So I don't want to get too far into it, but you've talked a couple of times about government regulations and limiting expansion or new facilities. Is that is the justification behind that environmental or what is the kind of the there's potential no, take? No, on? there's just a, a complete lack of education. If you want the honest answer. So there's we everyone's seen the headlines where fish farms are killing the world. Not exactly true. I could get into that and we could have a whole three day long discussion yeah. about that. But yeah, the basis same, is same as farmers, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all farmers, exactly. We're, we're killing the world. We're feeding you, but we're, we're all killing the world at the same time. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're the only ones that are actually worried about what the weather's going to look like next year or 10 years or 20 years or generational farms that have been tracking it for hundreds of years. Yeah. And preserving um, the land that we're working on. That we have to because we have such limited. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then yeah, we could exactly. chat about that forever. When it comes to fish farms, it's a lack of education of any bureaucratical process. And the easiest thing as Canadians is to just say no. We don't open up for new things. Y'all have dealt with CFIA many times when you try to get new products registered that you see registered anywhere in the world. And you're going, what the hell is wrong? We don't know. So no, we're not comfortable. No. So the regulations that exist around land-based farms are the equivalent to what's registered for a wastewater treatment plant. I have the same permits. But the permit that I have to take water because they don't, they can't possibly fathom the fact that the water runs through the farm and runs back out. And it's actually the same or better than it was when I took it in. We have the same permit as water bottling facility with the idea that the water is consumed and leaving this area. It's not true. Not at all. And then the permit that I have to put the water back because there isn't a box for aquaculture is the same permit to put the water back for a wastewater treatment facility which then means that all of the waste that I have on any of my facilities is as toxic as human waste in a wastewater treatment facility. So it's because nothing exists. Our forefathers in the constitution did not ever think we could culture fish. So we have two, two so lines that follow. Multiple bureaucracies too in each of those different. I deal with nine different, yeah, nine different regulatory there. bodies. <laughs> nine different regulatory bodies when it comes to the production of fish in Canada. And it's dissuading. And so a lot of people don't get involved. New people see that and they hear the story of my dad. And there's, my dad's not the only story like this where nine years, can you imagine that you're devoting all of your time and your effort making no money because all you're trying to do is track down and have meetings and find out what the hell people's problems are. Who can do that? I certainly can't. That's why we bought these old farms because I wasn't going to be as tenacious as my dad. There's farms sitting the money is some of the bigger entities the money's sitting there but they can't get permits because no one knows how to permit and it's scary and what if someone gets upset and it's like you really said, what we're still, we're still importing this product so oh, we, yeah we have yeah. yeah we have people who want to raise these products here that that, ah. that people are consuming but yeah and you guys know better than anyone nimbyism runs strong yes yeah that's true and that is very much a problem we don't we want to bitch about it, but we don't actually want to step up and have good local food production. Or if we do have good lo local food production, we don't want it. We don't want it in our area. We want to just know that it's Canadian, but it, it should be in the tundra. We don't want to see it. All of our cattle, all of our livestock should all be moved 
into the middle of nowhere where there's never going to be a natural resource that anyone wants to extract so that we just know that our food is Canadian, therefore it's healthy, and that's that. I know as a small pasture-based beef producer, people want their cows to be raised the way we raise our cows, but they want enough of them to be able to eat beef at every meal for a very low price, and they still want to be able to live in the country, and they don't want cows anywhere near them. Yep, yep. That doesn't, you can't, it is not physically possible to have all of those things. And I think what makes me so angry about so much of this regulatory stuff is that there are things that really do need that level of regulation, but we're wasting so much time and money on shit like making you get a wastewater treatment permit for raising fish versus actually putting that time and money towards something that actually needs that level of oversight that yep. then you just lump everything in together and oh it's all the same yeah okay yeah yep. yeah no and we're not an ingrained part of canadian culture either so we still we think of wild fish everyone thinks there's this infinite amount of wild fish everywhere that's gone it's been gone for a while in certain areas it's been gone a very long while and that's just not a reality and as you just mentioned you want all this beautiful pasture raised fish or beef or chicken or pork you want all of those beautiful things but you want to pay a dollar 99 a pound and you want to eat it every day those things just can't go hand in hand they just can't that's exactly it i would love for everybody to be eating beautiful beef whether that's corn fed or grass fed or whatever but you can't get it for a 99 cent hamburger that's not how it works no and it and then they're going on about lab-grown meat instead, and I just blah, blah, oh, blah. Yeah. But the anyway. alternative also is that we all eat a little bit less meat, which nobody else wants to hear either. And, uh, and no offense to you as a beef producer, but we should not be eating meat, no, beef, no. three times we, a day. We really shouldn't be. It's really not great. Don't tell my father that, though. He would strongly disagree. <laughs> You mean he doesn't eat fish three times a day? My dad used to only joke that he would only eat fish when the budget was low. Um, (laughs) Really? I know. Like, how ridiculous is that? And I will say that I eat fish probably three to five times a week. My brother and his partner probably eat fish eight times a week like we which is a it's a cultural or a generational difference i think but yeah no he we were not raised and when we did eat fish it was literally because my dad would only let us eat fish that weren't going to be sold for money so we as y'all know as farmers right is that old animal that's what we were eating so my my love of fish was not high when i was a kid yeah it's a slightly different yes. product than in that it's a very different product and fish you don't just turn into hamburger some producers do <laughs> yeah. but we do not so anyways yeah no we're eating old stringy broodstock mm. not enough lemon pepper in this world to not make that taste like a leather shoe i know we were talking to a lamb producer earlier this week about at least in our area how many old guys ate mutton in the army and yep that's what they think of when they think of lamb. And I'm like, there's no, (laughs) no, there's so many better ways to eat it. And even what we produce, I go for the smaller fish every time, like when we're cutting in the plant, I'll steal the small fillets because they're the lamb, they're the veal, they're the, that beautiful, soft, succinct meat. But yeah, no, it all depends. But no, my dad, my dad would eat beef or pork every damn meal. And he doesn't care for chicken and he doesn't care for fish. So. Unless it's shrimp, 
but we can talk about the sustainability of shrimp being an issue too. Oh, we could just talk for hours, I imagine. All right, I'm going to bring us into that parenting question because you're talking about your dad, but we want to also know about raising a little one on a fish farm. So I'm picturing little <laughs> life jackets. That's not a thing. It is for toddler life. No, it is. I have one of those crazy cautious kids, those ones that are just they're just born that way. So I'm super fortunate in the celestial land of my kid choosing to come to me. He knew exactly who he needed to be to make it through this life. He, he asks lots of questions. He's cautious and he only does things when he's comfortable with doing them. For example, walking across tanks, there's a three foot metal walkway, very safe, very constant. He will walk across those by himself. Now he's seven, almost eight. He is completely confident. But when he was a baby learning to walk and all those things, he never would. So I was super fortunate. That being said, my nephew spends a tremendous amount of time with us and he is the exact opposite. He does not think at all and he is hell and just would pell-mell in. So through careful coaching, we have made him a little bit safer. But the new add-on children coming around always wear life jackets. When we're up north, if we're with any of our First Nations groups or any industry groups up there, my son is always in a life jacket just because the water is like 120 feet deep and it flows and it's terrifying even for me. And my husband doesn't know how to swim, which is ironic. So very useless when it comes to rescuing the small child. So yeah, my kid, he... Put it this way, I was in labor while my husband was unloading a feed truck and I was yelling at my husband to get that feed truck unloaded. And he couldn't figure out why I kept yelling at him because I don't usually yell at him. I usually understand things take the time they think. And he didn't realize that between the rows of feed, I was having contractions. So my son was literally born on a Friday night. I was back at work on the Monday. He has been a part of this every breathing second. He was a little breastfed baby that had to be stuck to me all the time. He was one of those children. So he lived in a backpack with me all the time or a stroller. And all of the guys that work with us, and I use guys collectively for male and female, helped raise my son. Thank God. It, it, I am the super version of it takes a village to raise this tiny human. He needed me for sustenance and the rest was brought to you by everyone around us. But it's he's incredible. My son, through the COVID lockdowns, he was only in, in kindergarten at the time. And I didn't want to do the online learning thing with him. I was like, this is just not who you are. We're not a screen family. Um, so he worked on the farm and we did the math lessons on the farm. And he speaks, I, depending on the day, we would have Portuguese day or we would have Spanish day or we would have French day. And we would just do all those things as we went. So part of the reason why my husband also decided to work with us or why he and I both pivoted our lives to raise this tiny human was a because we never thought we would have kids. It wasn't supposed to be a thing medically. Anyways, and because my husband was a construction foreman. So he was leaving for work at four o'clock in the morning and getting home at nine o'clock at night. And that's not going to work to raise a kid. I wasn't doing this shit alone. So I also, as a family run business, could not get mat leave. Government doesn't provide for that, depending on how your company is structured. In our case, I couldn't get it. So he got paternity leave so we could eke out some government dollar because God forbid a farmer get a government dollar for anything. Anyways, that's a whole other topic, another podcast. So he has been very much involved in that sense. And then because of all of his wonderful gifts from the construction realm, he's been able to help us rebuild all of this. So my son's traveling around in a backhoe and learning how to run a forklift. And he has 
figured out how he's got the entrepreneurial spirit. So now our farm is open to tours. So if he sees someone on a Saturday or Sunday or after school, he rushes down and says, I'll give you a personalized tour. Two dollars all it's going to cost you. So he's figured out how to monetize this. Pretty great. That's awesome. And you can give him yeah. tips at the end if you want. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's worked out really well. And we have a lot of other staff with young children in a similar age brackets. And, and so he's been able to have that social aspect to it, which has been really great. And my parents have been really helpful. My mother, thank God for her being able to keep on the bath schedule and do all of those things as I'm like crazy help hell mel pelling it around and so yeah it's all worked out and my mother-in-law also retired so she could help take care of not just him but also my nephew then it's all worked out really well so it's been a very much a family endeavor I think our hardest part right now is he is the only heir apparent and so trying to make sure that people aren't treating him that way because that that is not the life I want it to be a life that he chooses not necessarily one that he feels is thrust upon him so that's that's probably the the single biggest issue is keeping that in check but no it's been really good it's been hard I've definitely caused myself some personal injuries trying to take care of said tiny human he's responsible for a broken toe and a busted boob and shit like that but you figure it out yeah we talk about that a lot actually because Katie and I are both from multi-generational farms and that kind of both the pressure and the privilege of working in a multi-generational family business where you you on the inside you hope that they want to do it but you don't want to pressure them but you don't want to tell them that they can't there's that push-pull of supporting them and letting them be involved but not wanting them to feel burdened by it so yeah. it's definitely a hard balance yeah, my parents did an exceptional job of it. And I actually think my family was the opposite. They were like, don't do it. Don't <laughs> like, <come back> here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've spent all of our life savings. We have nothing to show for it. We work 24 hours a day. We never get a family vacation. Don't do this. Have an amazing career that doesn't make you do this. Yeah, no, I think our family was a little bit of the opposite. And they, I still, I like, I ask my parents all the time, how did you do it? And they're like, we don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> One day at a time. One day at a time. Yeah. So Katie had yeah. a question for me. She's curious. Do you guys actually go fishing? So that's and I like probably just the... mean in the tanks. I meant. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, so that's probably like, like... also in the tanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the biggest irony again of this weird celestial child that was sent to us. He has been fishing since the moment he could walk. My husband knows how to fish. I didn't know how to fish. I don't know a flying fucking clue how to fish. I know how to walk up to a tank, put a net in, get whatever I want. It's pretty great. Never had Scoop to work for it. Fish, yeah. yeah and I, I get, I guess from the fisherman side, I get the romance of sitting beside a river or in a boat with the water around, but I get that every day. So I didn't need to have any of that. My son, however, is a fishing fiend. The only time my son would wake up early when he was a little kid was to go fishing. And by early, that little bastard had me up at 4.30 in the morning because we were going fishing. He's two. He didn't have, I couldn't let him like thread his own hook. I didn't know what I was doing either. I watched a lot of YouTube videos, but yeah. So no, I am not a fisherman. However, my son is teaching me and we have special pens on the farm that he is allowed to fish where some of the odds and sods go. And we started a fishing derby as a charity event for one of our fallen staff members. And so I'm learning. I'm learning. I don't like it but I'm learning. I feel like in all fairness, having both read and watched A River Runs Through It, it would have been a very different film if it had been about going out to a tank and scooping some fish up in a net instead of yeah. the 
the romance of fly fishing in Montana. Uh, yeah, I, exactly. So what I, a little different. We have a lot of staff that are, they came through the Fleming College program. And the reason why they ended up in aquaculture was because they love fishing. And so I have a lot of reality checks for a lot of those kids. I'm like, this is not fishing. Just so we're clear, there are fish. You're responsible for taking care of millions of them, but this is not fishing. But I have a couple members that are still pretty avid fishermen and still love it. And this was a fly fishing club. The property that they, my parents bought originally was a fly fishing club. So it's kind of that romance, but we didn't do it because we love fishing, not by any stretch of the imagination. So what are some of the parenting challenges that you've experienced and I really want to know about this broken boob situation because <laughs> my kids destroyed my abdominal wall and now they come up and go mommy why does your tummy look like that because you fucking uh, broke it, little shits I, yeah <laughs> no absolutely so I have that you same ruined problem it. in my abdominal wall where my six-pack which has never been a thing just so we're clear but if I had one those muscles do not exist in the right spot and if I cough they blow out like a poppet really yeah it's fun the, uh, the, the broken boob was I was a breastfeeder and I thought I could haul feed bags. So as a woman, our upper body, my upper body strength is not tremendous, but I have great hips. So I always lift really well with my hips and then I fling the bag at me to get it up at my shoulder. Yeah, I did that. And I shot blood out of all of my boob. But of course I didn't understand at the time new mother not a flying clue and my son Evo started belching out black blood because all of the milk ducks had bled and so he was spewing blood everywhere my blood everywhere so of course new mom freaking out take him to the ER and they're like oh this is not your son's problem this is your problem and they started palpating my breasts and there was literally just blood flowing everywhere so yeah got a I've got a fairly defunct flat boob now which is fine they're always in different shapes I just have one pancake edition I have never been so happy that I was unable to breastfeed as I <laughs> in this moment <laughs> like, my boobs just yeah. crawled back inside my body just thinking yeah <laughs> yeah yeah going. no it was not a great one the challenges honestly is just that balance of time because my son is so good at being at work with me and with us but it was like oh we should sign him up for extracurricular activities so we did but then the scheduling never worked and then I would forget to sign him up for like soccer because when you start soccer, it's like the part of our busiest fucking time of the year. So I've been woefully neglectful on those activities. Um, yeah, I fortunately have another mom friend now who keeps me in check and she takes it upon herself to sign her son and my son up for the same activities. So she picks him up and takes him because I'm not good at that. I'm not good at the normal mom thing. I did feel I do feel like the pandemic kind of helped us out a little bit in the those these last couple of years because a lot of this stuff got canceled and it was like yeah. oh there's no soccer so we'll just keep working. Yeah. Yeah, like and my son right now really he thinks he really wants to play hockey and I'm like we can't. I can't be a hockey mom and a farmer. I can't. I I watch people that go three times a week and four times a week and they're traveling and I'm like I, I, uh, I'm sorry. 
you yeah, can't. We've always said that we couldn't be a hockey family, maybe a curling <laughs> family, but a hockey family is just a step too far for us. Sorry, so that's not going to happen. It, exactly. So it's just like that has been the hardest part and just trying to do my best by him and feeling like I'm always putting the farm first. And yeah, that balancing tightrope of the farm is the family, but you're a human being too. Arlen, I know too that, sorry, I work full-time from home as well for for an off-farm job. And my husband also works full-time off-farm. And I heard our kids the other day were pretending to be us. And one of them was saying to the other, I can't right now, I'm working. And it was just like, yeah, dagger to the heart. Thank you, children. But yeah, yeah, all they see of us is us working either for work or for the farm. And it is, yeah, it's something. But it is, it makes it that that's probably the biggest challenge I have and trying to not let him grow up too fast because he's being raised by this incredible group, but we're all adults. He wants to make his money and he wants to do those things. And I'm like, dude, you're seven. Please just have fun. Please just have fun. So we're getting better at just having fun. And I, it's something I've needed to learn too in that whole, like you said, working all the time. So how do we have fun as a family outside of the farm? All right. This interview could easily go for several more hours. I think, especially now that I know that you're the sort of person that I can ask about your busted boob and you will have to tell us about it. I didn't feel too concerned that you were going to be offended by that. I am um, not offended at all by my busted boobs. No. I figured you brought it up first. Oh, yeah. yeah. You bring it up. Yeah. I'm going to ask about it. There is not anything I wouldn't answer, to be honest. It's actually a downfall of mine sometimes. Yeah, whatever. You just get a podcast and then you can say random shit about yourself and overshare all the time. That's, oh, there you, you go. Know, that's why. <laughs> Not seriously. Um, so we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair and you can make one up if you need to, what would it be? Dominate something at the county fair. Or well, state I fair, will. On the edge. Yeah, yeah. I will say I, a province fair. It would what be like, like the oh. municipal fairs, town fairs. We don't go okay. as big as your state fairs. I will say when I was a kid, I was one killer costume designer and all of my poor dogs had to be dressed up as sunflowers or apples and they all got put into their own little costumes and we won like the best pet costume year over year. And now we have the best fish costumes ever. Although the last one that I had made came in on a rush order and they finished it with Sharpie markers. So that's particularly special. So I would say we, we would be the best fish costumes out there we will definitely win that category now are these fish costumes still just for dogs or for humans as well oh we have or are they for the fish no no fish costumes for the fish (laughs) that needs to happen they are just gonna go they are dog costumes they're human costumes they are hats we have a ample collection of the craziest fish wear you could ever imagine and any event i go to isn't necessarily a crazy big costume but i have every fish print that has been put on clothing i am the possessor of i'm a little wacky about it that is fabulous i can just picture all of your staff in a town parade or something all in there we do town parades with them yeah yeah we i couldn't find anyone to help me make them so we made our own blow-up costumes and we modified sharks to look like fish but then the kids were like look at those watermelon sharks and it kind of (laughs) broke my heart (laughs) 
All right, I'm going to move us into our cussing and discussing segment. Otherwise, we will never stop talking to you. So welcome to cussing and discussing. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe, where listeners can leave their cussing and discussing entries, and we will play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave us a voice memo, or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com, and we will read it for you. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? As an entrepreneur from an entrepreneurial family, I have to admit that I hate the boss babe side hustle constant grind culture that we are now living in. This idea that if you do something and you enjoy it or you're good at it, you should be making money doing it. If you have more than 30 spare seconds, you should be making money doing something or, you know, something, some, we have to be busy making more at all times and doing more. And as someone who leans really fucking hard into the hygge, this even relaxing has become like a competitive perfectionist sport of who can relax the most photogenically and be the most hygge, which I really feel like defeats the whole point of relaxing if you have to relax the best and it just, it's really lame. And I absolutely fully support running your own business and doing the things you love and working really fucking hard to make that happen. But this, it being an expectation that we're just always going to have a little bit more to give is, it's bullshit. On the other hand, more discussing, less cussing. Arlen, what do you have to cuss and discuss? woke people oh Uh, yeah so this has been something that we've been struggling with a lot as a company and just as individuals the idea that you're woke and you're taking care of yourself and all of these beautiful things i'm finding is just making people so much more individual as opposed to anything community and you're only ever taking care of yourself and you only ever think of yourself and you don't take care of your community and human beings the one thing that we really truly need is community drives me absolutely fucking batshit crazy so we are dealing with that with a lot of younger staff as well because it's all about like their balance and like their time for them they need their time for them and as an entrepreneur and a farmer and a mother fuck that shit i am good if i get one shower in a week so that would be my my cussing and my discussing is the absolute fantastic weather that is about to hit ontario for the next week only Yay. Soak it in. Am I oh, up, sorry. What about you, Arlene? So this is not a cussing or discussing. I'm just throwing it in here because I feel like it, it's inspired by our conversation today. I have childhood memories of we would go to this trout farm and there was a stocked pond and you could go fishing, which was perfect for our family because there were four of us kids and my parents would be hooking, putting worms on hooks, or I think we used corn sometimes too. Anyway, it was super easy because you could just throw in your line, catch a fish super fast, and the people at this farm would clean the fish for you. So it was the perfect family activity. Until the time that my younger sister, who has been on this podcast before, got frightened by one of us pulling a fish out of the water, and then she ended up falling backwards into one of the tanks. God. So that was a less than fun family activity that day. So it wasn't full right to the top, thankfully, full of fish. It was a few inches of scungy water that they were probably cleaning out and then getting ready for the next round. So that was the stinky fish water that she fell into. 
during nice. our uh, family fishing excursion. So and the on the more cussing, that would be unfortunately your experience is what everyone thinks we run. Yes, um, is just yeah, yeah. They'll drive up and be like, "Where can I go fishing? Not here." No. <laughs> yeah, we can. I would them. love one of those fish. I'm like, those breeders are worth five thousand dollars. No. <laughs> yeah, you no. cannot have one. But we'll that is why I have a, a tour. <laughs> yeah, my son will give you a tour, and that's why you see the army of dogs that are here. So if you try to fish them out, they will not let you. Good luck. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. Have a nice day. Okay. On that note, thank you so much, Arlen, for joining us here today. Where can people find more about your farm and all about your fish online if they want to look? Oh, learn some um, fish puns. Learn yeah, to say if puns. they really want to see some of your brother's horrible jokes. Oh yes, yeah. he's very good at those. So we are everywhere under the handle Spring Hills Fish. You can go to springhillsfish.ca where we have a full website that talks all about our DTC. Also gives you all kinds of fun facts about our farm. Ontario Seafood Farmers is our industry association webpage, which will teach you more about our industry as a whole here in Ontario and with some more broad Canadian content as well. We are on Instagram, Spring Hills Fish, Spring Hills Fish. We're on, I don't think we're on Twitter. No, we're on Snapchat though as well. And what's the other one? TikTok. Spring Hills yeah, Spring Hills Fish. How far do you ship just for people who are listening? All over Ontario, with the exception mm -hmm. of obviously super far north. We get as far north as Sudbury and we go all the way to Ottawa. We work with a partner group called Annex, who also do different Annex delivery for stores and for home. They do all kinds of meat products, but uh, more specifically, they carry our fish outside of the zones that we directly deliver to. So we can get all over the place, but Southwestern Ontario, we have a really good coverage all along the West Coast, we'll call it, and all the way down just south of London all the way across to Toronto and up to Barrie and Aurelia. So we, that's our central area for now. But if you want, are outside of that range, Annex will also help us get to you. That's awesome. I can even order some fish. I'm not too far from Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great to meet you and to learn all about your business. Yeah, thank you guys. It was my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for talking to us, Arlen. No problem. Happy to have other female warriors that can joke and make light of this crazy fucking world we decided to live in. Thank you for joining us today on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making the show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you'd like to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We're always in search of future guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.